Um, really excited to be with you here tonight. We uh, are right now kind of in the in-between of two series. We just finished up our missions emphasis that was led by Steve Wright. And uh, next week, uh, Brad will be starting the new tech series. And so tonight is sort of a, uh, a single shot message that I get to share, which is pretty cool. So it's good to be here. Um, first, I want to ask, any, any TED Talk fans out there? Any of you guys like TED Talks? Anybody not know what TED Talks are? Okay, all right. So TED Talks, they're, um, the tagline of the organization is ideas worth spreading. And what they do is they gather all of these talks about all kinds of subjects from all over the world, and they put them online. And they're really fascinating. I encourage you, check them out. Whatever you're interested in, there's a TED Talk for it. Trust me, check it out. And a couple months ago, I was scrolling through some of the videos, and I came across one, and it just, it stopped me. Uh, The title of the the talk was, um, the the person speaking was named Rick Ellis, or Rick Elias. And the title of the talk was, The Three Things I Learned As My Plane Crashed. I'm interested. So I click on it, and I, and I hear him speak, and it's just uh, an amazing talk. He, he describes in early 2009, in January, he uh, boarded a plane going from LaGuardia Airport in New York to North Carolina. He had just uh, wrapped up a business trip, was coming home to be with his family. And he's, uh, he was a guy who's flown a lot. He's been on a lot of flights. Anybody here been on a lot of flights? Do a lot of traveling? Okay, so he, he kind of knew the deal. But what was interesting about this flight and what was kind of special is he got a front row seat. He was in seat 1D. You know that seat where you can kind of like spread out and there's like room and it's right across the seat from the flight attendant? I love that seat because, man, I got these long legs and it is just a wonderful thing to be able to spread out. So he got this seat and uh, pretty excited about it. And um, it was a normal flight. He got on the tarmac, the plane, and took off. And uh, everything was going around or everything was going just fine. He said it was about two minutes into the flight. They had just reached about 3,000 feet, and he heard on his left a large explosion in one of the engines. Large explosion. And then he heard the engine start to make this noise, this clackety clack clack, like it just did not sound right. So he, like all of us, looks at who? The flight attendant. Like, because if the flight attendant is okay, I'm okay, right? If the flight attendant's Okay, we'll be all right. So he looks at the flight attendant, and the flight attendant says, uh, yeah, we probably hit some birds. We're going to turn around and go back to the, uh, the tarmac, and we should be okay. And he was like, all right. And he said, after that moment, three things happened. And they happened just wham, 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 really quick. Three things. He said the plane made a right turn, a right turn, and lined up right up with the Hudson River. And he'd flown out of this airport enough times to know that's, that's not the way back to the airport. <laughs> then something else happened that really caused concern. The pilot proceeded to shut off all of the engines on the plane. And he describes in the talk that the plane was silent, absolutely silent. For those of us that have, have flown a lot, you, you know there's kind of this consistent noise on planes, man. There's just the rumble of the engine, people walking down the aisles, the guy snoring next to you. I mean, it's just noise, right? And here he is. He's on a plane, and it is absolutely silent. 
Then he said something else happened right after that. He said the pilot got on the, uh, on the sound system and said what he would say were the three most unemotional words he ever heard in his life. The pilot said, brace for impact. You didn't have to look at the flight attendant anymore because all of the blood had just drained out of her face and she was white as a ghost. And he knew at that moment, as everybody else on the plane knew, that they were in deep, deep trouble. He said as the plane made its way towards the Hudson that he realized a few things. The first thing he realized is that life changes in an instant. Here he is, he's headed back, he just finished up some business, he's going back to see his family, and now he's in this situation. Life changes in an instant. The second thing he realized, and and he said he realized this just as the plane was clearing the George Washington Bridge, and he said it wasn't by much. Just coming over the the bridge, he realized something, and it just He realized he had been wasting his life pursuing things that didn't really matter. He talks about how his ego had begun to take over his life. And his discontent, his desire for more, had sent him on this path of pursuing things that don't really matter. Man, when I, when I heard him say that and just thinking through, what would I do if I was in that situation? What would I be thinking about? And what, just to realize that for the past however long, he had been going after and pursuing things that don't really matter. As I was listening to him talk, the thing that came into my mind, I immediately thought of Dave Ramsey for some reason. I, uh, have you taken financial peace out there? Okay. He, uh, in one of his books, he has this uh, saying. I don't know if he came up with it, but it's great. He says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. <laughs> right? And I thought of that. Just this whole idea that, that ego in discontent, this desire for more, this desire to have more, bigger, faster, stronger, can lead us, if it starts to latch on in our heart and starts to grow, it can lead us down a road where we end up pursuing things that don't really matter. Discontent. It's a crazy thing. Thomas Watson, who's a, uh, he's a Puritan writer, he lived in the 1600s, He actually built his whole ministry around this idea of contentment and helping people find contentment. And he wrote a book called The Art of Divine Contentment. And in it, he makes this point, and and his writing is rough. Like I I was reading through it the other day, and I take a paragraph, and then I have to read the paragraph again because it's very dense in how he writes. But one of the things he says is he says that discontent is one of the most evil sins that can creep into our lives. He describes discontent as like water that slowly makes its way into the hull of a ship. 
And that over time, that water accumulates so that the ship rides lower and lower till it eventually sinks. He writes that the discontented person thinks everything he does for God too much and everything God does for him too little. He says discontent is like going up to God and saying, the family you've given me, the the friends I have, the house I live in, the health I enjoy, the money you've trusted with me, all of it, it's not enough. It's not enough. And he says it's even worse than that. It's like going up to God and saying, you know what? You're not enough. Discontent. And you and I, we, we all know this. We live in a world that's constantly pushing us towards discontent. And when I say discontent, I don't just mean like moments or seasons of time of discontent. Because we all have that, right? We all have things not go our way. There's times where we were hoping something would happen and it doesn't happen. Uh, actually, last night we had my um, coach over at Vista Del Lago. I'm the JV football coach for the O-line, D-line. And last night was our first game. It was our first game. So all summer, we're building up for this game. We're getting the guys ready. We're watching film. We're preparing. It's like all the kids are just fired up. It's going to be a great night. And did anybody go to the game last night? Hopefully no one. Okay, someone did. All right. <laughs> so we show up, and I mean, if it could have gone wrong, it went wrong for Vista football last night. I mean, it was a rough, rough game. And uh, it was about two and a half hours, and I'm just like, I mean, it just was a struggle. It was brutal. And I got home last night, and I knew I was going to come in and share with you all about being content. And last night, I was not content. I was sideways. And I was just like, and we've all been there, right? Where stuff doesn't go our way. It doesn't go as planned. There's disappointment. Not satisfied. It's a bummer. The danger, though, I think, is when we live there. The danger when it's not just a moment, it's not just a period in time or just something that happens at work, but it's something that's characteristic about our life. When discontent becomes an ethic, a filter through which we see the world. And suddenly it's not, suddenly it's not just moments of frustration, but it's people that are just fully frustrating. And discontent, discontent comes into all areas of our lives. Working with uh, high school students, I've noticed this over the years, that high school students can be really discontent. Anybody have a high school student that can be discontent sometimes? And I see it. I was talking to a girl the other day, and school just started. I mean, just started. And she was sharing with me how she got a B on her test. She got a B on her test. And I I promptly said, y'all, it's pretty good. B. That's above average, right? It's a good thing. And you would have thought, like, I punched a kitten. I mean, it was like, I mean, she was like, what? I got a B. I'm like, it's going to be okay. You will make it, right? I mean, students can be that way. I mean, I see students in the past um, who the pattern for them is they are in a relationship at all times. Like, they are always dating somebody. And if you ask them why, or you try to, like, talk to them about that, there's just like this I don't know. Like it's always, it was his fault, so I'm just going to get another boyfriend, and then, but then I'll break up with him, and then it's his fault. So it's like you're switching people, and it's really the real thing. There's just some discontent in your heart, some discontent. And students struggle with it, but man, as adults, don't we struggle with it too, right? 
discontent that can get lodged in our heart and start to grow and can start to wreak havoc in our lives. I mean, how I many don't raise your hand, but how many of us have ever been like thinking about our career and just felt just, you know what? I'm not content in my job. I'm not content in my role. I'm not content with my pay. I'm not content with the respect I receive. I'm not content with my boss. I'm not content. I'm not okay. This isn't right. Or how about when it comes to our finances, when we think about how much money we have or where we're at on the pace for retirement. Compare that with other people and where they're at. And that discontent that starts to grow. And what once used to be a little bit of discontent is now this big thing that's sinking our ship. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're a single person and the big discontent discontent in your life is, will I find somebody? Will I be single? Is this how it's going to go for the rest of it? Or what about health, man? Health is a big area we can be discontented in. I mean, in every area of life, discontent, if we're not careful, if we're not keeping tabs on our heart, it can start to, to sneak in and create pain. One of the most radical aspects of a follower of Jesus is contentment. One of the most radical aspects about people that go after Christ is contentment. Contentment is something that as we follow Jesus, I believe he can give us it in our lives. No matter the circumstances. And tonight I want to look at a passage of scripture where Paul shares with us how to be content in a discontented world. So you have your Bibles. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to start in uh, verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. This is what it says. It says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. It's God's word. I think what Paul does here is he shows us three things. The first thing he shows us is he tells us what contentment looks like. He tells us what contentment looks like. The second thing he shows us is he shows us how we can learn it, how we can get it into our lives. And the third thing he says is he shows us the source of contentment, where contentment lives. So the first thing Paul says, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances Paul gives us this incredible insight. What he's saying is he's saying to me, he's saying, Doug, your circumstances will never give you contentment. You will not find contentment by just looking to your circumstances. He would say that to us. Our contentment will never be found in our circumstances. And he says it to you. Your contentment will never be found in your circumstances, in what's happening around you. Contentment is something we can have separate 
from anything that's going on in our lives, any pain we're experiencing, any joy we're experiencing, we can have contentment, and it's not based on what's happening around us. Contentment, this incredible satisfaction, rest, and peace that is found apart from circumstances. When I think about contentment, some, maybe some of you think this, I, I thought this at first, that does contentment mean we just settle? Does it mean we just sit on our hands, we don't do anything, we don't try, we don't leverage, we don't work hard, we don't like, put in time and try to make things better? And I think what Paul would say is, hey, no, it's not about that. Contentment is not about just mailing it in and not going for it. In fact, if there's anybody who had a work ethic, it was Paul. I mean, that guy was a working machine. I mean, he planted churches, he was a pastor, he traveled all the time. I mean, this guy was doing stuff all the time. Yet in this passage, he says something. He says, you know what? My contentment is not based on the outcomes. It's not going to come to me because of the results. It's not going to come to me because of the things that I can do. My contentment comes not from my circumstances. And this is in direct contrast to what the world says, isn't it? Because doesn't the world say, you know, you know the way to be content? Get what you want. If you get what you want, then you'll be good. If you get what you want, it's all gravy. If you get success, money, power, if you marry the right woman, if you marry the right man, then you're good, right? Yet what, does, what, what do we know? It's not true. Because that would mean every successful, wealthy, famous person would be the most content people ever, right? Is that what we see? It's not. Because circumstances don't give us contentment. They never have and they never will. And we kind of know that, but sometimes we live like we don't know that. Because contentment isn't found in circumstances. That's the first thing. The second thing Paul says is he says, contentment, or no, he says, I know what it is in the verse uh, right after that. It says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. The second thing he says is contentment is something that has to be learned by experience. Contentment is something that has to be learned by experience. It would be so cool if we could just come to church or just go to school and just get insight and then our lives are changed right at the insight. But that's not the way things work. We have to actually try to live this stuff out. We have to actually try to put it into practice. And as we do that, we begin to learn what contentment really is. Paul says he knows what it is to be in need and he knows what it is to have plenty. If there was a guy who knew the full extremes, I mean, he knew the riches and he knew the poor, it was Paul. Paul was a guy in the ancient world, he was a Roman citizen, which meant, and this was really rare, he actually had rights. Like he had rights to a trial. He couldn't be just thrown in jail for no reason. He was a resourced individual. He had this Roman citizenship, which was a valuable thing. In addition, he studied under the premier rabbi of the day, which is pretty much the equivalent of going to an Ivy League school. I mean, he was an educated, well-resourced, well-funded guy. He knew what it was like to have every one of his needs met. In addition, he was a rising star in Judaism. He was like the poster child for the Jews at the time. I mean, he, was the, he had admiration and respect from his peers. He knew what it was like to have the plenty. 
The other side is he also knew what it was like to be in want. When it came to Christ, he was, bl- he was blinded for three days. He lost friendships. He was uh, put in and out of prison. In fact, he wrote the book of Philippians from prison, which I always thought was kind of ironic. Like he's writing about contentment, contentment from a first century jail cell. Remarkable. He had been shipwrecked. He had been beat up and left for dead. In addition, he had incredible physical pain. In one of the letters, he writes about having this thorn in his flesh. And Bible scholars sort of debate, like, what was that thorn in his flesh? Some people think maybe he had blindness or he had seizures or maybe he had some tumors. or We, we just don't know. But Paul says he had this thorn in his flesh, this thing that tormented his body. And so this was a guy that he knew it firsthand to have a lot and to have little. And he says the way he's learned contentment is it doesn't come through circumstances and it's something that has to be field tested. And God loves you and me so much. He's willing to bring us through the seasons of life where there's plenty and the seasons of life where there's need. Because what he wants for you and I is to have contentment in this life. Contentment, not based in circumstances. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.9, he says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says he went through the sentence of death so that God led him through that, so that he would trust not in himself, but in God who can raise the dead. Paul goes on to say, he says, uh, the verse down, he says, I have learned the secret of being content in and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I have learned the secret of being content. When I first read that, I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, what does he mean, I've learned the secret? I was doing some reading on this um, on this passage, and the word he uses uh, for learned is different than the word he uses up, the next, the verse up for learned. This word he's using here is actually, could be translated initiation. Almost as if he's saying, I've been initiated into this secret society. And the readers at the time would have picked up on this immediately, because Roman culture was filled with secret clubs and organizations where people could like get initiated into, kind of like fraternities or sororities. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying to the Philippians and to us, I've been initiated into this secret, the secret of contentment. So what's the secret? Be one thing if Paul was like, you know what? I figured it out. I know the secret to contentment. Hope you guys find it out and just like walked away. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He tells us what it is. The verse down. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul says the secret of contentment is I can do all this through him who gives me strength. 
I first, uh, I first saw this verse applied in uh, high school and in college. I remember the guys on my football team, they would sometimes, I think it was kind of a good luck charm, they would like, as they tape up, they would write on their tape, Philippians 4.13. Sort of as like a, a good luck, like I can go out on the field and I can do anything. Like I can score, I can score 10 touchdowns, I'm going to just bench press people all night and just throw them off, like, like the supernatural whatever, right? And I remember as a high school student thinking, I don't know if Paul, like, means that. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Rather, I think what he's saying is that the secret to contentment is Jesus. The secret to contentment is Jesus. He is the one who makes it all possible. He is the horsepower to get us there. He is the way to contentment. Whenever we talk about contentment, the question inevitably comes up, you know, like how much is enough? How much money? How much success do I need? How many titles do I need before my name? How, how, do my kids, how good do my kids need to be before I'm a good parent? Like all those like kind of how much questions. And really, Paul would say it's, it's the wrong question. It's not how much is enough, it's who's enough. It's not how much is enough, it's is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Paul says the secret to contentment is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Paul was constantly saying this, and I think every book he wrote it kind of came back to this idea that Jesus is enough. He is more than enough. He is sufficient. He is great. He's enough. When Paul was uh, crying out to God about his thorn in his flesh, he, um, he cried out to him many times. And, you know, Paul wasn't really a soft guy. You know, sometimes, like, I'm a football coach, so I see um, there's guys on our team that, like, we call it phantom injuries, where like they're all of a sudden their shoulder hurts, or like just right before it's time to run, they got to go like, I don't know, I got a ding or something like that. Paul wasn't like that. This guy was hard as nails. And he said that he actually had this issue with his body. We don't know what it was, but it was a major issue. And he pleaded with God three times. He said, Lord, take it away. Get it out. Get it away from me. I want it out of my body. I want to be good. Help. I mean, he said it many times. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God responds. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus said, my grace is enough. I am fully sufficient for you. So my question for you all tonight and for me is, is Jesus enough for us? Is Jesus enough for me? Is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough for you as a parent? I mean, maybe you're a parent, you just dropped your kid off at school, and your whole, family, your whole household now has a new dynamic because your son or daughter is not there anymore. Or maybe you're a parent, and you have little kids, and they're testing you all the time. And that question, is Jesus enough? for you in this season of parenting. Or maybe for you, you're in, you're in a career right now that you're not happy with and you want to switch careers, and it's that question, is Jesus enough? 
Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough in your marriage? Is Jesus enough? For some of us here tonight, we may say, you know what? The answer to that question, honestly, is he is. And you're resting in that and you feel that deep sense of contentment. For, some, for others of us here tonight, we, if we were really honest, we're not quite sure if Jesus is enough. We're not quite sure if he's really sufficient for this need, whatever need it is. I want to challenge us tonight um, to begin saying a simple prayer. And we can say it tonight um, as a church, and we're going to take communion a little bit later. We'll have an opportunity to pray it. Um, But maybe for you, just this week, to begin praying this simple prayer. And you can write it down if you want, or or if you can remember it. It's, It's just, Lord, show me that you're enough. Show me that you're enough. You're enough for this physical thing I'm going through right now. You're enough for me as a parent. You're enough for me. Even though I don't have a job, you're enough for me. Would you be willing, would we be willing to start praying that simple prayer? Lord, show me that you're enough. So back um, to Rick Elias. He... um, he obviously made it off the airplane that day, and um, many of you have seen Sully Sullenberger III, who successfully landed that Airbus on the Hudson River. Unbelievable. If you get to watch any of the documentaries, they're all amazing on what happened. And as the plane was headed, and he says in the video, as he saw the water coming up in the, in the window, and he knew he'd be hitting soon. He said he made a commitment. The third thing that he said he learned is he wants to be a better parent. He wanted to be a better dad. And so when this video took place, he was reporting on how he'd been doing. And he said at this time, you know, he's uh, eliminated negative energy from his life. He's a way better husband, a way better father than he ever was before. And he says, for the most part, life is better. Life is better. And I don't, I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know if he's following Jesus. Uh, he may be. I, I don't know. But there's something that we have as followers of Christ that the world doesn't have access to. We have access to the secret that Jesus is enough. And when we start to get that into our heart and we start to let that work on us in all the areas of our lives, we start to, we start to find that he is more than enough. And we start to live radically. And that contentment starts to just flow out of us. And we're good. If you want to live a life that's radical, focus on the secret, man. The contentment that we can find in Christ. Let's pray. God, thanks that you're enough, Lord. Thank you that you are more than enough. And Lord, some of, sometimes we struggle with believing that. We struggle with knowing if that's true or not, Lord. And I just pray that we would, that you would show us how sufficient you are for us. And God, as we take communion here, I, I just pray that that would just become real for us in, in a new way. That we would know how sufficient and good you are. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.